0: Father thank you that in your providence the outworking of your eternal counsel you have each one of us here in this room today and those watching with us online you have them involved as well and we pray that your word will come to us in holy spirit power that it will find its mark in our minds and our thoughts in our hearts and our souls we pray that you will accomplish your intended purposes for sending your word among us today. Your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. May your word uncover and shine light on and discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. May it correct us, may may it shape us, may it mold us. And would you send the Holy Spirit, the spirit of redemption, so that some in this hour may believe on you, Lord Jesus, and be saved in your worthy name. Speak to all your people, build us up in the inner man, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here's the title slide for the series again, Ephesians chapter 1. That's not today's message, that's a series in Ephesians chapter 1. This is part 2, this is the second message. Back to the text again, Ephesians 1, 1, and 2. And we noted three things last week that that are found in the Scriptures before you right now. And that is Paul identifies the writer. And then he identifies the readers or the recipients, which by extension are us, as well as the first century Ephesians. And then he just gives a greeting. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer, the readers, and the greeting. And last week we got started with uh, some introductory stuff that took up most of the sermon, and then we got into the writer a little bit. But we didn't quite get done with the writer, so we're going to do some more about the writer. And what I want you to know to get started on that is, when Paul writes these words intentionally, carefully, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, he's intending to establish his apostolic authority— He's answering the question, why should we listen to him? Why should we receive his word as the word of God, as the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior? He's answering that question. He's identifying himself for us. He's telling us he is one of that very small but very elite band of persons handpicked, chosen by the Lord Jesus, authorized to do his business in his stead while he's at the right hand of the Father. They were part of the foundation of the church, he being the chief cornerstone. And they were given authority to receive revelation, and they were given memory to remember what Jesus had already said to them so that they could accurately give it to the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament books. So when Paul claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's saying, What I'm giving to you is the word of God and the will of God. What I've written for you is the word of God written, it is scripture. He's claiming authority. Now, why am I spending time on it? Because we spent some time on it last week, and we're going to spend some more time on it today. Why is this important? And I want you to know that this is uniquely important in our day. It is dramatically important in our day because right now in our day, the church, I'm talking about Bible-believing evangelical churches and seminaries and professors and leaders in those seminaries, the church is battling right now, And there is, from my vantage point in that battle, an all out attack, a no holds bar assault being made upon the Apostle Paul. Which is really nothing new. The same was happening in his day. Read 2 Corinthians. And there were people in the Corinthian church saying, Paul, an apostle, he's an embarrassment. He doesn't speak with Greek oratory skills. He works with his hands. You want a church leader that works with his hands? What kind of a philosopher, statesman, farmer would that be? That was their image of what somebody ought to be. Extra-biblical history tells us, whether it's true or not, we don't know, that he had a unibrow and he was bow-legged. Maybe that embarrassed them too. So the guy can't speak according to our Greek canons of speech. He's got a unibrow, for goodness sakes. It distracts me. I can't listen to him. He's bow-legged, looks like a cowboy or something, but on a horse too long. They didn't like him, some of those in Corinth. And he wrote that epistle primarily to defend his apostolic position and authority. We have to do that same thing in our day. Why? What's going on? What are the issues? The issues are what certain people call the hard passages in Paul. There's about four or five of them. They're called the hard passages. This is where Paul stands diametrically opposed to movements in our culture right now. So what do I mean by that? Well, for example, take the uh, LGBTQ plus sexual revolution and then go read Paul, and the whole revolution goes away. And Paul says, It's one man who was born a man and is a man with one woman who's born, and they're married. And that's the only time when you do anything sexual, it's right there. Nothing else qualifies, nothing else is right. So that's kind of not real popular in our day. But the Bible says, Preach the word in season and out of season. So we got to stand with, with Scripture. But also, it's not just the LGBTQ plus thing, it's also the gender confusion of our day, these days in which, these weird days in which, like no one in all of human history has ever done this till now, and all of a sudden right now we're multiplying genders, there's no end to how many genders they're imagining and multiplying, but Paul stands with Scripture and says, uh, excuse me, there are two. There are only two, like when are the adults in the conversation going to wake up and say, these poor kids that we're allowing to imagine this dumb stuff, why don't we just tell them all the truth? All right? It's biologically determined. So it's gender confusion. It's the LGBTQ plus. It's gender confusion, but it's also gender role confusion because Paul stands very firmly on the husband is the head of the home and... He's supposed to be the leader in the home. Now, if you've gotten a bad taste of that because you had unbiblical, excessive, ungodly examples of that, I understand. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, please. Don't say, so I'm throwing out the whole thing. I'm throwing out. Please don't go there. Please say, all right, I recognize I had some bad bathwater. I got a bad wash. I got a bad taste. Throw out the dirty bathwater. Stick with the apostle Paul. When he tells us about gender roles, not only in the home, but also in the church. When he tells us in scripture very plainly that those who are preaching are supposed to be male, by the way, if that's hard for you, just remember most males in the church aren't preaching. Only one or two of the males in the church are preaching. So you can pretty much do anything a male can, anything most males can do in the church. And only the males are supposed to be the pastors, the elders, or the overseers. And there's only seven of those in a church of, what are we, 350 or 400, if everybody showed up one day. So, uh, so really, there's very little restriction placed on women compared to the same place that most men are in. But some people in our day are having a real hard time with Paul and LGBTQ and gender confusion and gender role confusion. And here's what they're doing there are several ways they're approaching this. Here's how we approach this. Here's how I approach this. And I hope, and we as a church do, and I hope you will too. If you're not here, I hope maybe I can nudge you here. And that is, we believe that everything we have in Scripture including all the writings, every verse, every word, every dot over every eye that the Apostle Paul has written for us, is the Word of God. We are to receive it as such, bow before it, believe it, and act upon it. So that's our position. That's this preacher's position. But there are other positions right now in our day in evangelicalism. And if you're only hearing this message, not watching, I'm making air quotes around evangelical because it means just about nothing anymore. It's really become hard to define. But there are others who say, well, I accept some parts of Paul, but not others. That's, that's a rage right now. I mean, fortunes are being made by writing books to say that. They've been saying that for 40 years. I read books about this 40 years ago. I reread, just glanced through, uh, two of them yesterday. So this is nothing brand new, but they're saying, I accept Paul like in Galatians 3.28 where he says there's neither male nor female. They say, ah, that, this is their new hermeneutic. This is their new method of Bible interpretation, which is bogus. They say, ah, that has to become the guiding principle. So anything else Paul ever says that makes it look like there are gender role distinctions in the home or in the church, either Paul was wrong or we have to reinterpret and we've got him wrong. Either he was wrong or we got him wrong, but either way, Galatians 3.28 is going to be our guiding light. So either they say we accept some parts of Paul, what well, we reject others, or, and this is more common, and I read a whole book that did this this week, because it's really popular in the church right now. It's a rage in the church right now. I don't know about in our church, but in the church, and what they do, if they don't reject parts of Paul, they develop entirely historically novel ways of interpreting or reinterpreting Paul to fit in with what they like in the current cultural twin trends, which is no surprise that people are doing that because in Paul's day they, they were doing that. Peter tells us there are those who, uh, who twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures, and they twist them to their own destruction. There's no shortage of Scripture twisting on these issues in our day so that what the church has believed for 2,000 years, and by the way, if you're going to do interpretation, church history, what others before you who got on their knees, prayed, and studied their brains out in their Bibles, church history is going to be a quality control on your own little interpretation that you want to come up with because of cultural pressures so you find new ways to interpret Paul. There are whole new hermeneutics, whole new principles of how to do Bible interpretation that are being presented to us, which if we'll accept them, then we'll see new things in Paul that the church has never seen before. And so there are people now, and these are some quotes that I picked out of various things we're reading. Uh, One says, Paul is oppressive, sexist, and bigoted. Another says, Paul hijacked Christianity. Another said, there's Christianity and there's Paulianity. Another said, Paul changed Christianity into something that would be unrecognizable to Jesus. Another said, I go with Jesus, Paul, he's kind of sketchy. So there's lots and lots of this going on. So you will perhaps permit me, you will perhaps humor me if I spend a little bit more time on Ephesians 1, 1a, talking about Paul as having authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. But now here we come to, here's where I left off last week. That was the introduction for today. Here's where we left off last week, and I want to pick it up here. Here's what I didn't get in last week that I wanted to get in last week, but the nasty clock got in the way. So here it is. How, we have to ask, we're trying to establish and keep Paul's authority, and his writings are the Word of God, they're from Scripture. How did Paul become an apostle? Because all the other apostles are people who walked with Christ in His earthly ministry, saw Jesus from the beginning of His earthly ministry, were there, heard His words, traveled with Him, and more importantly, they had to have seen the resurrected Lord. And like that round, by Paul's time, that round had gone downrange, That boat had sailed. That opportunity was gone because by the time Paul's around, Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven. You can't see him anymore. So how does Paul get in in that elite number of those who saw the Lord, saw the Lord resurrected? How come he gets to be part of this? So I'm going to answer that for you. And to start our answer, we go to Acts chapter 9, where we find Paul's first of three accounts of his own conversion in the book of Acts. He's on the what road? What's the name of the road? The Yeah, he's on the Damascus Road. How many of you have ever been? I've never been on the Damascus Road. Isn't there a Damascus, Maryland? There is. I've been on that road maybe, but not on this one. And we find Paul on the Damascus Road just having a great time. Every day is a wonderful day because every day he's persecuting Christians, chaining them, locking them up, dragging them out of their homes, putting them before the magistrate, threatening them. So we read, for example, he introduces himself in this way, or Luke talks about him, Acts 9, 1. But Saul still, so he's been doing this, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Imagine that, he's breathing. It's like every time he exhales, it's a threat, Every time he breathes, it's murder. I'm going to kill you, Christians. That's Paul. That, that was his daily disposition. That was his constant activity. That was his passion, his occupation, his obsession. He was definitely not an apostle in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. But then what happens? Well, suddenly Jesus appears to him in mercy and in grace. He, he, he saw Jesus as a bright light. How fitting is that? The brilliancy of the light of of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And the bright light appeared to him. He was blinded by it, and he didn't know what was going on. And so he talked, you know, like, who are you? And and the Lord Jesus basically answers, this is my paraphrase, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, dummy. And guess what? You now believe on me, and you not only believe on me, but I'm appointing you as one of my apostles. You're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read that, Acts 9.15. A man named Ananias was sent to visit Paul in town. Paul's still blinded, and Ananias goes to explain to Paul what's going on. And here's what he says, Acts 9:15. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go. Ananias is like, I'm not going to talk to that dude. Uh-uh, no way. The Lord says, It's okay. I got this. Go. Now watch this. These are important words. For he is, Paul is, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, to pick up with his hands and carry, that's what that Greek word means, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So how did Paul become an apostle? He's like, he's late to the game. How did he get in? Because Jesus appeared and Jesus spoke to Ananias and said, Paul is a, now watch the terms, a chosen instrument. He's chosen. That's the word that elsewhere in the Bible is always translated elected, elect, 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 or chosen, chosen, chosen. And This is always used of divine choice. Jesus is saying, you know how I chose the other 12 and one of them abdicated? They've replaced him with Matthias. But you know how I chose them? I'm now choosing this one. In other words, He's not going to be an apostle little a, an apostle of the churches. No, he's going to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's my apostle. I'm choosing him. He's a chosen instrument. The word instrument is skuos. It's a Greek word that means a clay pot. He's just a clay pot. He's not the deal. I'm the deal. Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm just going to put my glory in him. I'm going to put my gospel in him. He's a clay pot, and he's going to carry my gospel around to kings and to Gentiles and to the children of Israel. And that's the third thing we have to note. He's he's a chosen instrument to carry my name to Gentiles and so on. Now, what is that if not an apostle? Someone Jesus Christ specifically chose, directly chose, immediately chose, put his truth inside of that clay pot, and then said, now go, I'm authorizing you, go preach to them and to them and to them and to them. So Acts 9.15 is very important. It begins to show us how Paul got into that very elite group and how he can therefore truly say, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is important enough. Don't don't think, all right, he's spending all this time on an apostle crying out loud. I already believe Paul's an apostle. Move on, man. No, I... This is a big battle in the church right now. Do we really go by Paul's words, or can we throw some of them out? Can we get our exacto knife and cut some of them out, say, I don't like that part, but I like this part. It's like a daisy. I love him, I don't. I love him, I don't. Depending on which verse you're in. Can we do that? Or can we radically reinterpret in ways unknown to 2,000 years of church history the hard passages by the Apostle Paul, or do we just bow before them in their plain sense and obvious meaning? So that's why this is important. Can we trust Paul? Let's go a step further in how Paul is the legitimate apostle. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Now what's 1 Corinthians 15 famous for? Come on, what is it? What's the subject? One word, it's a big long word. Thank you, resurrection. It's got a bunch of R's in it. Okay, So Chapter 15 is about the resurrection. Some of the Corinthians were saying there is no resurrection. And Paul's arguing, oh, yeah, there's definitely a resurrection. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared. And now we come to this verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen eight, last of all. That at the very least means Paul was the last one in that time period who ever saw Jesus. But I tend to think, can't prove this, I tend to think he means And nobody else is going to see Jesus till he comes. So think about that. But he says, last of all, at least out of all the people who saw him close to the time of his death, burial, and resurrection, note the next words, as to one untimely born he appeared also to me that phrase as to one untimely born is all one greek word its ek meaning from and trauma meaning it was from my trauma in other words he's saying i was born into the apostleship i was born into that greek into that group in a very traumatic way, I had an ectroma experience. Now, it, that means more than that. So in that day, it was commonly used for, let's say you have the, the Old Testament speaks of this kind of thing, two men are fighting, there's a woman great with child, they slam into her, it does harm, the baby comes out, it may live, it may not live, and that day, more likely, maybe not. And so it's a terrible situation, and they would call that an ectroma. That was a traumatic birth. But it was also used in this way. Let's say somebody goes late, right? So they're nine months. They knew what nine months was then. They knew how long pregnancies last. So somebody's going late, right? Like she's in the nine and a half months. By the way, just footnote: you have to know this for this to make sense. So, uh, why do we have babies at nine months? Why not later? Like humans take a ton of development. We keep girls keep developing until they're what, 21, and guys till they're 90. Right. We're a little slow in the game there, but girls get it pretty fast, right? So it takes us a while to develop. Most of our development is done outside the womb. So far as I know, I could be wrong on this. No other mammal, we're kind of mammals, no other mammal is like that. They do most of their developing in the womb and then they pop out and a horse can walk or immediately, right? A little deer can kind of walk. Not a baby. We have a lot, we have a ton of developing to do, especially in the brain. So why are we born at nine months? Because if you left it in there longer, you'd never get it out. That's why. That's as big as a baby can get, and you're going to get it out. So babies are born at nine months. That's the way God set that whole thing up. So Paul's saying sometimes in his day, there would be a traumatic birth. It went beyond nine months. That kid is big. We're having a real hard time getting that baby out and keeping everybody alive. That's a traumatic birth. So I think Paul may be referring to several things here. One is The fact that I was on the Damascus Road, I was minding my own business, persecuting Christians and having a great time of it. And all of a sudden, this trauma, this light, I was blinded. I went to town, a guy's talking to me. He says, You're a believer. You now preach for the Lord Jesus. That was pretty traumatic. But not only was it traumatic in that sense, it was also late. Like all the others were born at nine months. They were born into the apostleship at the right time. But I came at ectroma, out of time. I'm out of sequence. And I came later, but I did come into the game, and I am an apostle. So he's saying, last of all, the Lord Jesus appeared to me as one untimely born. He appeared also to me. So Paul, let's, let's just get it clear, Paul was born... By the will of Jesus Christ, by the work of God the Son, into his apostleship in a traumatic way, in a way that was later than all the others, but born he was into that very small, very elite group commissioned by Christ to represent him, to plant his church, to write the documents for the church so that we can know Paul got this right. He's from Jesus, all right? So let me give you a statement here. This is nothing special, just a few words. But what this means is, apostle by the will of God. That part of what he wrote, that part means that everything we find in Ephesians, well, not just Ephesians. How about Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and maybe even Hebrews, if you like. All right, all of that. One-third of the New Testament, more if you add Hebrews, all of that, everything we find in all of that is from Jesus Christ and comes to us through the pen of Paul as inspired scripture. It is the authoritative word of God. We don't exacto knife any pieces out. We don't come up to things and go, ooh, I don't like that. Let me see if I can find a way around it. You will always find a way around it if that's what you're trying to do. Always. Always. You'll come up with an amazing new way of interpreting Paul that nobody for 2,000 years ever saw until this little cultural thing going on that we have. And now people are seeing things. And it's like scripture ventriloquism. You make the text, you twist its arm and make it say that it didn't want to say. All right, that's what's going on. By the way, if you're a part of that, if you're tempted by that, I love you. We can have a little friendly debate. I love you. You're welcome to be here. Hopefully we'll convince you. I'll, I'll, I'll defend your right to be wrong if you want to be. I mean that in a friendly way. So Paul's an apostle from God. And what that means is we need to listen to him. That's why I'm taking up your precious time. I'm not done with that yet. Are you okay with that? Isabel, I can always count on you. Love you, sister. So Paul asserts that he's an apostle. What do others say about him? What did the Lord Jesus say about him? Well, not about him by name, but about him by category. Let's look what Jesus said about people who reject those whom he has picked and sent. Luke chapter 10 and verse 16. Jesus sends out the 70. They were not all apostles, capital A's, but they are being sent by him. He's authorizing them for that trip. Here's what he says to them. The one who hears you. So this applies to Paul. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. If you're thinking about cutting the piece out of Paul, if you're thinking about radically reinterpreting Paul, I just want to caution you. What it looks like to me is you're about to reject some of what Paul got from Jesus and gives to the church. Just please, please consider that. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's a serious thing to start messing with scripture. You know where it ends up? You think, well, I can just take this one step and I'll take out this verse from Paul that I don't like. Pretty soon you're going to lose your whole Bible. You're going to lose your whole faith. You're going to be an apostate and you're going to wind up in all kinds of moral mess. It never stops right there, friend. Don't think I can just take this one step. No, it's the first step and it is a slippery slope. Don't start down that slope. That's my counsel to you. What did Peter say about Paul and Paul's writings? This is good because if you're going to throw out Paul, you're going to have to throw out Peter too. By the way, you also have to throw out Luke because Luke worked with Paul and he liked Paul and wrote about Paul. You're also going to have to throw out all of John's epistles because Peter liked John and Peter liked Paul. And if Paul's bad, they're all wrong. So you're left with a very small Bible if you start taking out pieces of Paul. But let's see what Peter said about Paul. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he says, and count the patience of our Lord. He hasn't returned yet. Count that as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As an apostle, Jesus gives him wisdom. What he writes is wisdom given to him. What he writes about gender is God's wisdom given to him. What he writes about gender roles, God's, what he writes about human sexuality, God's wisdom given to him, says Peter, according to the wisdom, as he does in all his letters. So there you've got Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and all the way down to maybe Hebrews. They're all covered by this. They're all, Peter says, uh, the Lord's giving him that wisdom as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Then here's what Peter adds. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen? Anybody ever struggled with a passage in Paul? I want to say, Peter, uh, the the pot calling the kettle black here. I got some issues with you too, brother. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist. They come up with sneaky new hermeneutics that aren't logical that are fallacious, that aren't the way the church has handled Scripture responsibly for two thousand years. That aren't a continuation of the long, time warm time-proven grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation of the Word of God, using all of church history as a quality control. So I don't come up with something novel because of the pressures of my age. The unstable, the ignorant, and unstable twist to their own destruction. They're like Elvis; they're doing the twist with Scripture. As, and then look how he ends it. As they do the other scriptures. What's he saying about Paul's writings? All of them. Their scripture, the graphe, the writings, the sacred writings that are believed to be the word of God. Paul was put on a level with Jeremiah, with Ezekiel, with with Lamentations written by Jeremiah, with Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, all the way down to Malachi. The scriptures and what Paul writes in all of his letters, they're scripture. This is what others said about Paul. And you want to know what Paul said about himself? What was his own? Was he aware, I am giving out the word of God? Or did he just think he's writing a letter? Now, this is interesting Let's look at a few places. We'll dip in at First Corinthians 14. Are you all hanging with me? You look like you are. Thank you. A lot of thinking in this one, huh? First Corinthians 14. Paul had some opposition in the church in Corinth. He's actually teaching on gender roles in corporate worship at the moment of this verse. And he is anticipating some pushback in the church some of those who didn't like him as an apostle anyway. So here's what he says to them. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Hint, hint, it wasn't. The word of God came from me, he's saying. It wasn't from you. And then he says, or are you the only one it has reached? If you think it's reached you, you think you're the only one? You don't think it's come to me? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, or spiritual, then here's what a prophet or a spiritual person would do. He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul, could you please restate that more clearly? The things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. You can't get your exacto knife and say, I don't like that part. It's not culturally cool right now. I'm just going to cut that one out and toss it. And if you've gotten some bad bathwater from some, you know, overwielding, domineering, dumb dude, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't start looking for ways to get around Paul. Because Paul says, if you think you're spiritual, you should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If people don't acknowledge that, they are therefore not what? Spiritual, not prophets of the Lord. And then I love the way he closes like, Paul can be a little cheeky sometimes. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So somebody says, I'm going to throw out 1 Timothy 2. You're not recognized. Somebody says, I don't like what's in Ephesians 5 about husband's wife. You're not recognized. You don't get the floor in the church of Jesus Christ. You don't get to do the talking. Oh, they are doing the talking. The books are flying. The money's being made. But they don't really get to talk in the church of Jesus Christ as far as Paul is concerned. So that's how others thought of Paul, the Lord Jesus and Peter. And that's how Paul thought of himself. Let me give you a little bit more, like I'm heaping upon heaping, because it's important right now. 1 Corinthians 2.13, look at what Paul says. He's writing scripture for them, and he says, these things, the stuff I'm talking about, we also speak in our very words, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. In other words, Christ didn't give me an idea, but I'm putting it in my words, and because it's my words, maybe some of them are wrong. That's one of the theories going around. No, 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 Paul says, these things we speak... The very words are not according to my wisdom, but they're words which the Holy Spirit teaches. The words I'm writing to you in 1 Corinthians are Holy Spirit-inspired words. They're Holy Spirit-taught words. Again, notice what he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.13. Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words. I don't know why they translate it sound. I like that. I dig it. Sound words. But the word is hujiano. It's hygienic. It means they cleanse. These words cleanse you. These words make the people of God holy and pure. And Timothy, I want you to follow the pattern of the cleansing sound words that you have heard from me. Well, Paul doesn't say, now look, I'm just a guy, so probably half of what I said is wrong. you have to pick through and sort it out for you. No, no, no. The words you heard from me, Timothy, you follow in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. My words are going to lead you in the faith and love that's in Christ Jesus and then finally just a really good summary for Paul's view of himself 2 Corinthians 11:5 <laughs> he says for i suppose i was not a wit i don't even know what a wit is what's a wit i never looked that one up it just struck me in the pulpit in the early service so here it is again in this service he says i suppose i was not a wit behind the very chiefest apostles even though he came late even though he was born out of time even though he was born from a trauma even though he missed the bus and got on the bus a little bit later he says I just want you to know I'm not behind Peter you'd be the chiefest of the apostles I'm not behind James I'm I'm not behind Matthew I'm not behind John I'm not one bit less than they are I am an apostle like they are that's what Paul's saying I'm not an apostle little A, apostle of the churches. I'm an apostle like Peter's an apostle. I'm an apostle like John is an apostle. You see, I'm not one whit behind them. Okay, I think you're getting the point. Pastor Steve, you're all worked up about this. It's okay. We're not, we not exacto knifing our Bibles. Well, there's a lot of that going on in the land, and part of my duty as a shepherd is to watch, Right? I'm supposed to watch what's on the horizon coming our way. Oh, I know what's on the horizon. In fact, they're on my, I'm reading them, some of them, so I can know. Here's what's coming, and here's what probably some of you are reading. And I just want you to know, there's, in some of those books, there's such a lack of logic. There's such poor history when history is cited. And there's horrible exegesis, handling Scripture faithfully to accurately bring out the meaning. It's just terrible what's passing for scholarly books in our day. So congratulate yourselves. You made it through. Who's writing? <laughs> All right, there you go. We got through who's writing. And now we're gonna turn to, in the minutes that remain to us, we're gonna turn to to whom did he write it? Oh, this is good. This is sweet. Like if you struggle to get through the apostle, 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 apostle mark, this is just get ready. This is honey. This is good. To whom did he write it? Let's look at it. Ephesians 1, 1b. This is to the saints. Ah, he's writing to saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus, and by extension, all saints everywhere in all times who get this book who are also the faithful, that is the believing ones, or they continue faithfully believing. I'm writing to saints, believers in the Lord Jesus. It's a book for believers primarily. You're not a Christian. You're welcome to read it. Please read it. Please pray as you read it. Oh, God, give me light and lead me to the Lord Jesus. But he's writing specifically to believers, and he calls them this amazing word. He calls us saints. So there's two kinds of people on the planet, right? It's not men and women. All right, that's two kinds of people. That's a polarity. But there's spiritually speaking, there's two kinds. There's sinners, right? And there's saints. You're a saint now because you're in Christ. Before you were a saint, what were you? You were a sinner. Some of you are not believers and you're wondering how this works. Let me explain how it works. So there I was before I heard the gospel and believed on the Lord Jesus, and God saw me in my sins, This is as if all the sins I'd ever committed, all the violations of his law that I knew nothing about, things I thought, things I said, things I did, all those things, imagine every one of them was written on a little piece of paper and pinned to me, and another piece, and another piece, and then there's pages pinned on pages, and I'm getting to be like the Michelin tire man with all my sins on these little pieces of paper pinned all over me. And when God sees me, he sees me in all my sins. But when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, they disappear. All your sins are placed on the Lord Jesus, and he bears them in his own body on the cross. And God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he reckons it. He transfers it to your account. And from then on, God sees you in Christ, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Like there's not one thing that God would say, oh, well, actually, on a practical level, there is, but on an eternal level, there is not. You're holy. And that's all this word saint means. It doesn't mean, like, the Roman Catholic Church got this one wrong, all right? They've gotten a few things wrong. They got this one wrong. And they think a saint is some peculiar, one of a kind, amazing, amazing, amazing person, did such wonderful things. They're so holy, they're so loving. And so we'll canonize them and call them a saint. That's not what the Bible calls a saint. The Bible calls you a saint if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been washed by his blood. And it's so easy to leave the sinner class and come into the saint class. What do you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And all those little pieces of paper, they disappear. Christ bore them in his body, and the righteousness of Christ, it's as if God sees you and you have perfectly kept all of God's laws always. It's amazing. So this thing about being a saint, if you're a believer, you need to know you've had a change of identity. Yes, you were a sinner. I can only think of one place. Maybe you'll have another and give it to me after the church. But I can only think of one place where a believer is still called a sinner, but we're called saint, 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 everywhere everywhere. You know where the one is where a believer is still called a sinner? It's Paul. He says, um, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am, present tense, chief, because I persecuted the church of Christ. Paul says, I am identifying as a sinner. But everywhere else I can think of in the New Testament, you're a saint, you're a saint, you're a saint, you're a saint. Now that's important. Don't be going around all the time like, well, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm such a lousy Christian. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner. That's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Don't look in the mirror and see sinner. Look in the mirror and see saint. See yourself as God sees you. See yourself as you are in Jesus Christ. Maybe you should all start calling each other. There's St. Aaron and St. Alyssa next to him, and there's St. Jim in the front row, and we're all here. All right, maybe we should start calling each other saint and make the point. But we're all saints In the Lord Jesus. Now I want to do one thing. I want to just hopefully tease you so you'll come again next week and maybe bring a friend. I want to show you what we're into next week. So we've seen Paul's, who's the writer? Who are the readers? What's the greeting? The greeting is, I should put it up there, Ephesians 1, 2, grace to you. What's this letter going to be about? It's about grace, God's unmerited favor coming to you in the word of God. And from that grace, you get peace. Paul wants you to have grace and peace. And then he starts into chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is one humongous run-on sentence of 202 words, numerous relative clauses and phrases, and man, some people have even written like it's a, it's a horrible sentence. No, it's an amazing sentence. But it is a run-on sentence. So if you're in English one-on-one, you get graded down for a run-on sentence, open up your Bible to Ephesians 1, they'll probably say, when you can write a run-on sentence like that one, all right, you'll be okay. But it's a long run-on sentence, and notice how it starts. Uh, It's about our spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, 1, 3 through 14. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed, here's where we're starting next week, Lord willing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why is he so blessed to us? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're a saint who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he's gonna give us some examples. Let's just go to the next slide please, slide ma'am. And we're gonna see seven reasons why we're so blessed. This is where we'll start next week. I have no idea how long we'll spend on each one, we'll see. We are blessed because we are, verse 4, chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy in Him. That's coming. We are blessed because, verse 5, we are predestined by God for adoption unto Himself. We are blessed because, verse 7, we're redeemed through Christ's blood and forgiven our trespasses. We're blessed because, verse 8, He has made us to know the mystery of His will to unite all things in Christ. We are blessed because, verse 11, we're given an inheritance among the saints. We're blessed, in verse 11 again, because he predestined us according to his purpose that we might be to his praise. We're blessed because, verse 13, he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. So Paul gives us, he says, you're blessed with amazing spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Oh, what are they? Here's seven, and he pours those seven onto the page. It's going to be amazing seven to work through. So that's where we're going next time. Will you come? All right, bring some friends. Let me recap. This is not on the slide, slide man. You're done. Good job. So what was this message about? Number one, my recap. Number one, I hope you will accept the apostle Paul as an apostle of Christ Jesus, and therefore his writings as from God and absolutely authoritative in your life. And I hope you won't resort to sneaky little interpretive messages that make Paul wind up saying something he never said. Number two, please understand that in Christ you are a saint. Cultivate that identity. Rejoice in that. Delight yourself in that. Hard to believe, isn't it? You know how we say sometimes in common parlance, oh, thanks, man, you're a saint. So best as I can recall, in 46 years of marriage, Debbie has never once called me. She's never said, you're a saint. There's hope. Maybe we'll live another 20 years, and I'll get her to call me a saint someday. But I'm a saint, whether she calls me that or not. By the grace of God, cultivate that identity. Accept Paul's writings as the word of God. Understand that in Christ you're a saint. And the third thing this message has been going at, however briefly, is we're starting to understand, in Christ you're so blessed. You're so blessed. We're the most blessed people on the planet. Say, no, I'd be blessed if I had a Tesla pity the guy who has the tesla and doesn't have christ i'd really be blessed if i if i have a tesla but i'd be blessed if i had a lucid i really want a lucid they're only what 160,000 bucks or something that's all i'd really be blessed if i had a no 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 pity the guy that has a lucid and doesn't have the lord jesus christ you're blessed walking no car walking there should be a bounce in your step and a gleam in your eye because you're in Christ that's what Paul wants to impress upon us we're going to look at it next week let's bow and pray together Father thank you for this time in your presence and gathered with the saints and our friends who are with us we pray that you would draw them powerfully draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ may your irresistible grace captivate them turn their hearts turn them toward yourself Make them our fellow saints and fellow citizens in the kingdom, we pray. and Father, we pray that you, would, that you would protect our church from the kinds of battles many churches are having right now over Paul and the so-called hard passages. Would you protect our church from all that, that we may continue to accept Paul's writings as we do Peter's and James and John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, as your word. May your word reign with clarity and power in our lives and in our church. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, some, some of you might have had a real hard time with this message because maybe you are tending in some of those cultural directions. And I just want you to know, I love you. I care for you. I'm not trying to drive you away. I'd rather drive you to me so we can talk. So you want to talk to a pastor or you just, maybe this message leaves you, you want to talk to a pastor for some reason to know more about Christ or to know more about how to follow him better.